Revelation chapter 10. While you're turning to Revelation chapter 10, just a reminder, the book of Revelation is primarily not a book given to us by God to show us future events or to satisfy our curiosity about future events. The book of Revelation is primarily given to us to reveal to us who Jesus Christ really is in all of his glory. It gives us a complete picture of Jesus Christ, not one that stops with the Gospels, but one that carries through the rest of the New Testament and and ends up with the glorified Christ, the Lion from the tribe of Judah, who will come one day and rule and reign on the earth. And so the the great benefit of Revelation is, is just as we just sang, it reminds us of the exalted Christ and the fact that there is nothing in the universe higher, more powerful, more greater than He. So anything in my life that comes against me, any opposition, any obstacles, whatever, Christ is greater than it all. And it's something that we need to be reminded of. And the book of Revelation certainly gives us that picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when we come to Revelation chapter 10, we come to a pause in the book of Revelation. And and we sort of need a breath or a pause at this point. Because after the last couple of weeks of, of judgment being poured out on, on the earth and, and seeing all these judgments, it's almost like God even understands within the reading uh, of the book that we need to take a, a few minutes and take a break, if you will, from what is happening on the earth. So in Revelation chapter 10, we are introduced to uh, really uh, an angel who comes and shares with us the intent of God to take over, and and once and for all, make things right, vindicate him and himself and his word and his people, and, and to totally take this world from Satan and from all demonic forces and, and from the ungodly uh, human race, and to allow Jesus Christ to rule and reign with his saints on earth. So, with that said, let's just read the first couple verses of Revelation chapter 10. John says, Then I saw another powerful angel descending from heaven wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow about his head. His face was like the sun and his legs were like pillars of fire. He held in his hand a little scroll that was open. Now, I don't believe this is the same scroll that we taught on in Revelation chapter 5. And again, because we're trying to get through Revelation rather, you know, quickly... Uh, we're not going to take the time to dive into too much of this tonight, but I want to get to what I think is, is really important for us here as far as practical application. He put his right foot on the sea and his left on the land. Then he shouted in a loud voice like a lion roaring. And when he shouted, the seven thunders sounded their voices. By the way, the word thunders in the Greek literally means to roar. So you've got a lot of roaring going on. You've got the angel whose voice is like a lion roaring, and you've got these seven thunders that are roaring as well. And when the seven thunders spoke, I was preparing to write, John says, but just then I heard a voice from heaven say, seal up, literally conceal, hide, keep in silence what the seven thunders spoke and do not write it down. And we don't know why God did not want John to write this down. But he simply said, I've given you what I want you to write down. Keep in silence these things. Then the angel I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by the one who lives forever and ever 
who created heaven and what is in it and the earth and what is in it and the sea and what is in it. There will be no more delay. Now, the point that I want to make from this and how I think that we can practically again apply this is to look at the character and nature of God. Basically what God is saying here through this angel and going to continue to say here in Revelation chapter 10 is, I'm coming to take over and set up my kingdom. This is my intent. Can anyone stop God when he wants to do something? Can, can anyone stand in God's way? And basically by the angel taking his feet and standing upon the sea, and it, it's a sign of authority, like, I'm here, I'm taking over, this is what's going to happen. The encouraging thing for us in that is that through this passage, God is reminding us of the un, His unchangeable nature. Uh, you especially see that in the word swore in verse 6 of chapter 10. The word means to affirm, to promise something. And the reason why the angel can obviously promise something is because he knows that God obviously is faithful, His word is reliable, He will carry out in detail everything that He said. And what God says is unchangeable because His character is unchangeable. He's unchangeable. You see this throughout the Word of God, where God said in the Old Testament, I am the Lord, I change not. Jesus, uh, describing Jesus in the book of Hebrews, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The psalmist in Psalm 119, verse 89 says, Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. And that's a very important word. The word settled means to take one's stand. And don't miss what the psalmist is saying. The psalmist is saying that people who trust in God and in His Word can take their stand because God, in a sense, has already established His Word and taken His stand. In other words, it's not like you and I or anyone who becomes a God follower ever has to worry about God changing. Like waking up one day and going, uh, you know what I said there? No, I think we're going to do something different. No. And God's never going to say what He's going to do and then not do it. So the reason why you and I can totally put our lives in His hands and trust Him is because we know He is not going to change and His Word is not going to change. That's why we can be settled. That's why we can have that sense of security and stability in our lives because His Word is forever settled in heaven. He's not going to change it. He's not going to tweak it. That's why he gives a warning at the very end of the book of Revelation that those who tamper with the Word of God are going to be cursed and under plagues because you and I have no business and no right tampering and tweaking the Word of God. But folks, I hope tonight that you are settled in your spirit. We can be settled. We can have that sense of stability. And like Nicole said, even, even though maybe circumstantially our world may be spinning and turning around right now, our stability and security isn't in our circumstances. They are in the Word of God and the God who spoke that Word, His character. And that's exactly what the angel is saying when he says, I swore by the One who lives for and ever. This is going to happen. Man may not want it to happen, may not like it to happen, whatever. But it's going to happen because God said it. And notice also that the angel reminds us that this is coming from the Creator of the universe. The One who brought this universe into existence. 
By the way, the word created there in the Greek language in verse 6 means to form, to shape, literally to make habitable. And isn't it interesting that throughout history, the majority of mankind in the world has rejected the very clear revelation that God is exists and that He is the Creator. And that's another reason why God is saying, I'm the Creator, this is mine, I'm taking it back, and, and I'm going to make things right. I, I've allowed you know, Satan and, and the demonic forces some liberty within my sovereignty. I've certainly allowed you as humankind to have your liberty and freedom throughout the years. And you've made a mess of things. It is time for me to come and set things right and make them right. And he reminds us there that he has the, the right to do this because he created it all in the first place. Then, we also see something very important at the end of verse 6. And that is that the timing of all this is in God's hands. When the angel says there will be no more delay, literally there will be no more time. But he's simply saying that now the timing of all this is going to unroll as God sees fit to unroll it. And that's a tough thing for us. No matter whether we're in the tribulation period or whether we're in 2011. We don't like it sometimes when we realize we're on God's timetable, not ours. And yet, again, the Bible affirms that these things are going to happen in God's timing of them. And they're going to roll out in God's timing, not in ours. Verse 7. In the days when the seventh angel was about to blow his trumpet, the mystery of God is completed. What is this mystery? Well, notice he goes on to say that this mystery was proclaimed to his servants through the prophets. Verse 7. So I believe that the mystery here was just something that was hidden, was concealed for a time, but then God made it known through revelation. And what the mystery is, is the kingdom of God coming to earth. But notice something very interesting, again, in verse 7. And that is the word completed. In other words, in the original language, what God is trying to say to us is that the certainty of these future events are so certain, or that these events are so certain, that it's if it already happened. That's how sure God is that this is all going to happen. Because He knows... I not only can say it, but I can bring it about. So I, I don't, you know, unlike us, sometimes we may promise something, we may wish, we may desire something, but we have no power to be able to, to control all the circumstances and bring it about just as we would like. God does, because He's God. And so it's very interesting in His Word many times when He talks about the future and yet talks about it as if it already happened. <laughs> But that's exactly what the word completed means. Then the voice I had heard from heaven began to speak to me again. And says, go take the open scroll in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. He said to me, take the scroll and eat it. Now, the word eat here doesn't necessarily mean to physically eat a book or a scroll. It does mean to consume something. It does mean to devour something. And it eventually means to digest something. But not necessarily in a physical way. So I think there's some symbolism going on here. 
And he says, take the scroll and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter. The word bitter, very interesting. It means to grieve or pierce. Keep that in mind. To grieve or pierce. But it will be as sweet as honey in your mouth. The word sweet there literally means in the original, refreshing. Now keep those thoughts in mind as we finish out chapter 10. So I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. And it did taste as sweet as honey in my mouth. In other words, I think what John is simply showing us, and we, we would, we're going to do the same thing. We've done the same thing with the Word of God. I, I believe the scroll is symbolic of God's Word. And as a Christian, you and I all know that we can take in the Word of God. And to us who know the Lord... When we start thinking about His promises and His promises to come and make things right and vindicate our faith and, and all of that, that's sweet to us. That's why Jesus again showed us to pray, Your kingdom come, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is exactly what's taking place in the book of Revelation. It should be sweet to us in some way. To know that Jesus is finally going to receive His due. But there's also that bitter side as we begin to digest what's going to happen to those who reject Jesus Christ. That's why I think it's like it's sweet as soon as it hits our mouth. But once it goes in there and we begin to truly digest and think about the destiny of unbelievers, it begins to pierce us. It begins to grieve us. We don't take pleasure in what's going to happen to folks who reject Jesus Christ. And God, the Bible says, takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. God's will is that all men should come to repentance. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. So, there's this sort of juxtaposition. When you and I read the Word of God and we apply it to us, sweet a lot of times. Refreshing. Encouraging. But when we begin to think how the Word of God hits those who do not know Him in a personal way, it should grieve us. It should pierce us. And as I said, one of the, the things that should come out of our study as believers of the book of Revelation should be a renewed motivation to pray for the lost and to seize opportunities to witness when God gives them to us, to those who don't know Christ. Because what's going to happen is sure, from God's perspective, as if it already happened. It, whether we, we can deny it all we want to. We can pretend like it's never going to happen. Just like I'm sure the folks around Noah and the ark thought, this is never going to happen. Rain, flood, no. And it did. So, you know, we can go through that whole dance too. But the bottom line is, it will happen just as God said. Our responsibility before God isn't trying to figure out a way for it not to happen, but to just be the light that God calls us to be in the darkness. Then they told me, verse 11, you must prophesy 
The word means to simply speak out and teach by divine inspiration. Teach God's word, not man's word, and teach by the enablement of God, not in the flesh. And notice, he ends chapter 10 reminding us that this message from John has been on a global scale. Because he is to speak about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. This message of revelation is going to affect the entire world. No one in the world will escape what's going to happen in the book of Revelation. That's why Christians even, who've tried to interpret the book of Revelation as somehow happening sometime in the past, and, and Nero being the Antichrist and all this, they, they fall very short because everything up to this point, even Jesus says, this This time that is coming in the future will be unlike any other time in human history. It literally will affect every nation, every tribe, every people group. And there's never been anything like it up to this point. That's why I'm what they call theologically a futurist when it comes to looking at the book of Revelation. There are some people that interpret the book of Revelation as already, in a sense, happening in history. And they, they, everything that happened in Revelation, they, they take it as an allegory and a symbol of something else rather than a literal approach. I'm a literalist and a futurist, if you want to know where Jeff stands on it. Chapter 11. Then a measuring rod, like a staff, was given to me. And I was told, get up and measure the temple of God and the altar and the ones who worship there. Very interestingly, the words measuring rod there are translated elsewhere in the Bible as scepter or as a ruling rod. It's the same word that's used in other places when it talks about Jesus Christ ruling with a rod of iron. Same word. But here it's a measuring rod that John is given. And he's told to measure three things. The temple of God, the altar, and the ones who worship there. A couple things. First of all, the word measure means to judge according to any rule or standard. Obviously, in this case, by the context, it is God's standard. That John is being told to measure something, to judge it based on the standard of God. It reminds us that when, when God holds mankind accountable, it won't be by our own standards or by comparing ourselves with others. It's going to be compared to God's standard. Folks, that's why every human being needs a personal relationship with Christ. Because we can never measure up to God's standard on our own. We can never be good enough. We can never do enough good works to measure up to that standard. See, we're going to get into that in the book of Galatians. But notice something else. The implication here is that that means that there's going to be a temple rebuilt at this time in history. Can I tell you that right now there are plans in Israel to rebuild the temple? And in fact, there are people right now that are knitting and putting together the priest's garments and getting things ready. All of this is happening behind the scenes to many in the world so that when God does open up the opportunity for the Jews to rebuild their temple, it's not going to take long to begin to reinstitute the sacrificial system. So God wants John to 
measure the temple, the altar, and the ones who are worshiping there. But verse 2 says, do not measure the outer courtyard of the temple. Leave it out. Literally, it means cast it out. Expel it. It's, it's showing God is not approving of what's going on outside in the outer courtyard because it has been given to the Gentiles. Literally, in the Greek, the word is ethnos. It's translated other places in the New Testament, nations. It simply means non-Jewish people. And here's why God is casting it out. Because these people, the non-Jews at this point, are trampling on the holy city for 42 months, three and one half years. The words trample there mean to treat insultingly or desecrate. In other words, the non-Jews who, who have access even to the outer courtyard and to the rest of the city of Jerusalem are desecrating it from God's point of view. Now we get to these two witnesses in verse 3. And I think that these two witnesses have great application for you and I. So I'm going to spend some time tonight drawing some, some lines, if you will, of application between these two witnesses and us to try to bring the message of something yet future down to where we live on an everyday level. First of all, God says through John, I will grant my two witnesses authority to prophesy for 1260 days dressed in sackcloth. First of all, the, there is the reminder in the Word of God that God always has His witness. At any time and every time in history, God is still reaching out, sharing His gospel and His Word with people, wanting them to respond. So even in the darkest time of human history, the tribulation period, God sends two witnesses to witness them. It is a reminder again of the character of God. God never changes. He always wants to reach out to people. Even during the tribulation. And there will be many who will be saved during the tribulation. But obviously there will be many who are not. One of the great books of the Old Testament, Jonah. You know, some people think, well, the Old Testament is just about God's dealing with the Jews. No, it's not. The whole book of Jonah is about God's heart for the Ninevites. He, he asked one of his own people, Jonah, to go and, and preach to the Ninevites and tell them, yeah, judgment is coming, but if they repent, I'm a God who forgives. So again, the character of God does not change. That, that's why Christians who have a view of God, that somehow God is a different God in the Old Testament than He is in the New Testament, then what you're really saying is God has changed. And that means that I'm trying to hit a moving target. What's God going to be like here? See, that's why God says, no, no, I, I will never change and my word will never change so that you as a human being don't have to try to hit a move, moving target. You know exactly what I, what I mean. You know exactly what I've said. Uh, here it is. And I'm not going to change it. I'm not going to tweak it. I'm not going to tamper with it. It is what it is. Two witnesses. First of all, the word grant is an important word. I'm going to take this pretty slow tonight because... Golly, we got almost 15 minutes. The word grant means to supply what is necessary. It is a reminder to us as His witnesses now that God will supply everything necessary in order for us to be effective witnesses for Him. Acts 1.8 
I will give you power and you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. Jesus, in the end of the book of Matthew, says, I'm going to send you out, go into all the world, teach the, the, the gospel, baptize, and I'm with you always, even into the end of the age. God will give us everything we need. Remember, the saying that I use is, God doesn't call the equipped, He equips the called. And if God is calling us to something, if, if God is asking us to do something, He will supply everything necessary to carry it out effectively. Grant. Notice my two witnesses. That's very important. God is simply saying, hey, they represent me because they're dedicated to me and my word, not to themselves. They're not out for their own agenda. They aren't their witnesses. They're my witnesses. Because it's all about what my desire, my will is. We have to, as servants of Christ, lose our will in His will and be His witnesses. Two. Two is important because in the law of Moses, God said everything must be established by at least two witnesses. So even here, two witnesses. It's important. Jesus even said in the New Testament, where two or three are gathered in my name, I will be there in the midst. Two. Also, I think it's important because Jesus sent out His disciples two by two. God never wants us to do this alone. Even though we have Him, there is something in the dynamic of also knowing we have a partner to do it with. Two witnesses. Then the word witness. The word witness is in the Greek, the word martus, where we get our word martyr from. And it reminds us that, that many times, witnesses sometimes have to lay down their life. And even those of us, we may never be called upon to lay down our physical life for faith in Christ, but we should be living in such a way that we are willing to do it. And that we're living at such a high level that in a sense we are laying down our lives every day. Because that's what Jesus calls us to. When he says to take up our cross daily and follow him. And I will grant my two witnesses authority to prophesy for 1260 days dressed in sackcloth. Sackcloth was literally a sack. These guys definitely would be contestants for the uh, makeover shows. And the reason that prophets, especially in the Old Testament, wore sackcloth was sackcloth was a sign of grieving, mourning, and brokenness. So again, get the picture here. Even though these two witnesses are going to be proclaiming the message that God gives them, they're not taking any pleasure in what they're doing. Because they know for the most part, they're going to be rejected, they're going to be opposed, and they understand the destiny of what's going to happen to those who reject the Word of God. They take no pleasure in that. In fact, it's, I think... Those of us who are broken before the Lord, even broken over our own sin, that God can use most effectively. When you look at the servants of God in the Bible, the most effective servants for God were those that had to go through brokenness. Brokenness. 
When we get to the end of ourselves, then God can take over. These are two olive trees and two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Now, we're not going to take time tonight, but write down Zechariah chapter 4. And when you get a chance this coming week, later on, read Zechariah 4. I think that Zechariah, in his prophecy, is pointing towards what's happening here in Revelation. And literally, the words two olive trees means sons of oil. And it's a beautiful picture in Zechariah that the lampstands that were set up there in Zechariah 4 were being fed continually by oil. And it's the idea that oil in the Bible is a symbol of the the Holy Spirit and His power. And it's the idea that we need to remind ourselves of that we can only be an effective light for God when we are empowered and filled by the Holy Spirit. And that's exactly what Zechariah, and that's exactly what's being shown here. Two olive trees, two lampstands. The only way they can be lampstands is because they're sons of oil. They're allowing the Holy Spirit to fill them and continually fuel them, if you will. They're not trying to do this on their own, in their own power. That's the way you and I can be effective as well. The other thing, notice they stand before the Lord of the earth. In other words... Their position as they minister is always before the Lord. It's something for us to keep in mind. That's why Paul says many times, folks, we don't minister to men, we minister to the Lord. That when we serve and minister, we are to do it as we do it unto the Lord, not to men. And that everything we do and everything we say as the servants of God, we are to remind ourselves we do it in the very presence upon the very face of God. God is looking at our lives. He sees our service. He sees our ministry. And we should live knowing we are living before the Lord at all times. Two witnesses. If anyone wants to harm them, the implication there is they're going to face strong opposition to their ministry. The world doesn't roll out the red carpet for these two witnesses. And many times the world doesn't roll out the red carpet for us as well. We are not to be discouraged by opposition. In fact, many times we should be encouraged because it's probably a reminder to us that we're doing exactly what God wants. That's why we're facing the opposition. If we weren't facing opposition, then the enemy would let us alone. If anyone wants to harm them, literally to hurt them, or it also can be translated to sin against them, fire comes out of their mouths and completely consumes their enemies. Wouldn't you love that power? (laughs) Somebody says something about you, you're fried, you know. God couldn't trust me with that power. If anyone wants to harm them, they must be killed in this way. In other words, from God's perspective, it is a necessity because God wants His witnesses to be there. Verse 6, they're described as having the power. I love this word though. Something we need to keep in mind. The word power there in verse 6 means authority, but it also means privilege. It's a reminder as servants, as witnesses for God that every every authority, every power, every responsibility that God gives us is a privilege. And a privilege not to be taken lightly. 
They have power to close up the sky so that it does not rain during the time they are prophesying. They have power to turn the waters to blood, to strike the earth with every kind of plague whenever they want. Now, many people down through church history believe that these two witnesses are probably going to be Moses and Elijah simply because they base that on the description of the powers they have correspond to the powers that were given to Moses and Elijah in the Old Testament. And certainly, Moses symbolizes the law. Elijah symbolizes the prophets. It it does, you know, make sense. But I, before you, cannot be dogmatic about it simply because the Bible's not dogmatic about it. If if God wanted us to know it was Moses and Elijah for sure, he would have said, Moses and Elijah are going to come back and that's who it is. He didn't, for whatever reason. When they have completed their testimony, verse 7, here's another important thing. The words completed their testimony literally means to carry out their mission that God has given them. In other words, as we move on in verse 7, don't miss the fact that just like with us, you and I, don't miss this, you and I as servants of the Lord are indestructible until God says their mission is over. No no matter what the enemy tries to do to these two witnesses, they can't get to them until their mission that God gives them is completed. Jesus modeled this greatly. Remember when they tried to kill him before it was his time to go to the cross and the Bible just said he sort of disappeared and slipped out of their midst? You and I need to take heart that God has called us to some kind of purpose and mission on this earth and we are indestructible until that mission is carried out. When that mission, though, is carried out, notice the beast literally means savage, ferocious, that comes up from the abyss, will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. I want to talk first of all about the phrase make war on them. It reminds us of the incessant opposition to the people of God. We must expect opposition in our ministry. And some may wonder, why did God allow these two witnesses to be overcome? Just like today. Why does God allow that Christian to die and allow that ungodly person to live? Why why does God allow this beast to get the better of these two witnesses? Couldn't he have stopped it? Yeah, but in the mind of God, he's got a purpose in mind, a higher purpose. And we're going to see even here by the end of chapter 11... I think even some of what that purpose is of why he allowed them to die. It was for a greater purpose. And that's what we've got to keep in mind. Notice this. Their corpses will lie in the street of the great city. That is symbolically or spiritually called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was also crucified. Very interestingly. Obviously, we know where the Lord was crucified. He was crucified in Jerusalem. So then why does the Bible say, spiritually or symbolically, we're calling Jerusalem Sodom and Egypt? Well, when you study this out, it it means in the original language that through the aid of the Holy Spirit, who can see the true spiritual condition of something, He's revealing to us the true spiritual condition of Jerusalem. And to God, the Holy Spirit, the true spiritual condition of Jerusalem is is like the immorality of Sodom and the idolatry of Egypt. Even though it may look like a religious place from the Holy Spirit's perspective that, again, can see the true condition of something, can get beyond the surface, 
No, it's Sodom and Egypt to the Holy Spirit. It reminds us the insight that we can have through the aid of the Holy Spirit as well. And notice, for three and a half days, those from, again, every people, tribe, nation, and language will look at their corpses. Again, before the advent of television, even Christians were scratching their heads going, how in the world is there going to come a point where people all over the world can see an event that happens? Now, we obviously know through satellite and through television, this is no big deal. Something happens in Jerusalem, it's going to be plastered on every news, news station. We, we can understand that, but you got to understand, 100 years ago, that tested their faith. Just like some things test our faith, and 100 years from now, if the Lord tarries, they'll be going, why were those people back there having such a problem? And then it says... They will look at their corpses because they will not permit them to be placed in a tomb. They intentionally dishonor these, these two witnesses with such an indignity of not even bearing them. That's how much they hated them. Not only that, but notice verse 10. Those who live on the earth will rejoice over them. Literally in the Greek, eat, drink, and be merry and celebrate. Notice even sending gifts to each other. They're going to invent like a new Christmas holiday. Hallmark will invent a card. You know, the two witnesses are dead. You know, something like that. And, you know, it's going to be a big party on the earth when these two witnesses die and lie in the street. They're going to send gifts to each other because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. The word tormented, very interesting word in the original language. It was a word used to test metals by a touchstone. In other words, the touchstone would rub up against a metal. And through the friction, fric friction and rubbing, the quality of the metal would be seen. So, don't miss the picture. <laughs> These two witnesses really caused a lot of friction and rubbing against the people of the world. Because through their witness, they were being shown for who they really were. And people don't like to be seen for who they really are when they're exposed by the Word of God. But that's exactly what the Word of God will do for all of us. That's why Jesus said, those though that truly want to follow me will come to the light and be exposed by the light and, and seen for what they really are so that then we, we can work on the things that need to be worked on rather than hiding in the darkness and pretending like nothing's wrong. These two witnesses are going to bring things to light that have been hidden in the darkness. But after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them. And literally, they were resurrected on their feet. And tremendous fear, dread, terror seized those who were watching them. I mean, you can imagine. You know, the whole world's having a party because these two witnesses are dead. And now all of a sudden, they're resurrected. And here's at least one reason why God allowed it. Verse 12. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. So the two prophets went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies stared at them. Just then a minor earthquake took place and a tenth of the city collapsed. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the rest were terrified, frightened, and gave glory to the God of heaven. 
I think some people through this will come to worship the true God. The second woe has come and gone. The third is quickly coming. Just hang in there for one more minute. I want to go over to verse 15 and then we'll pick it up in verse 15 next week. The seventh angel blows his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he will reign forever and ever. You've ever heard Handel's Messiah? Very familiar verse. It's what rings through Handel's Messiah. I want to point something out. In your Bible, your Bible should have the word kingdom singular, not plural. The correct translation is the kingdom of the world, not kingdoms. And the reason why that is significant is because God is pointing out something here. That all the kingdoms, all the nations, all the governments of the world down through history have really been influenced and energized by the God of this world, 2 Corinthians 4.4, Satan. And therefore, it's really not separate kingdoms and governments and nations. It is really a mass of humanity that has been influenced by one God, the God of this world, Satan himself. That's why Satan could even take Jesus when he was tempted up to that pinnacle and show him the kingdoms of the world and offered them to Jesus if he would bow and worship because they were his to give. Because the world as it is set up now is no friend of God's. And it's certainly not structured from a righteousness perspective. But one day, folks, here's what I want to leave you with. The rule and reign of the world and all of humanity will one day begin to be the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ. And He will reign forever and ever. You can be sure of it. You can rest in it. You can be settled. You can be secure. It's as if it's already happened from God's perspective. It will happen one day. And you and I, you and I, if you know the Lord Jesus, we are going to be a part of that kingdom. Let's pray. God, tonight, we've certainly talked about a lot of different things. Most of all, Lord, I I just want to go back to the very beginning. To the place where the angel came and affirmed by the creator of the universe what was about to happen as if it was already completed. And if nothing else, Lord, I, I hope that each one of us can take away from this part of Scripture. That God wants His people who believe and trust in Him and in His Word to be at rest, to be secure, to be settled, to have a stability that the world could never have. Because as Jesus taught, the world builds their houses on sinking sand. The world builds their lives on that which will not last. But Lord, you and I know that for those of us who know Christ, 
Our lives are built on absolute, solid, stable rock. And you have told us that your word is forever settled in heaven. Therefore, God, you know that we can take our stand for you because, in a sense, you've already taken your stand. So help us, God. Help us in the coming days and weeks and months where we live in a world of turmoil and turbulence and everything's changing so rapidly. Help us, Lord, to just exalt you and rest in your unchanging word. Help us to do that, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.